0: Welcome to this edition of Toby Hadoke's Who's Round, which is part of a quest or even a master plan.
1: where well, there's two more intelligent people than in us having a conversation. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, in their swimming trunks. Um, but this one's been a long time coming, and it's quite easy sometimes to take for granted uh, people that have contributed their time very generously to the chronicling of all things Doctor Who. Uh, and this next gentleman is one of them, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who.
1: Well, I'm Andrew Cartmel, and I used to say that I was script editor of Doctor Who for three years during the Sylvester McCoy year, but... Now I say that I was the showrunner, because it sounds a lot (laughs) grander, And it's pretty much true, pretty much true.
0: Yes, and uh, there's a lot of questions I'd normally ask in Who's Round that are answered by your excellent books, which we will maybe point people in the direction of later, that give a a very frank account and an honest insight. Well, it was
1: brilliant, because that... The time when I was working on Doctor Who happened to overlap with the time of my life, uh, brief time of my life when I was actually keeping a diary. I'd write all this stuff down, so it was there. Because when you go back when you delve into your memory, you know you don't really remember that much. But I had the diary, so it was, it was just. Tr- I'm so chuffed, really pleased that I did keep a diary. So, as you say, it was frank. Yeah, it was frank and accurate, which is
0: well. Great. The, the memory cheats, as uh, John Nathan Turner famously yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's fair to say, well, I don't know, you may disagree, that your time on the show, I think, is appreciated more now than it oh, was at the time. Oh, definitely,
1: definitely. I mean, at the time, I did get some very good responses from people, but not the sort of global feeling you get now, where it's sort of, it's become sort of an accepted thing that, oh, oh, yes, that, that was a turning point in the show, and it did... Paved the way for the sort of the direction the show is taking. Took somewhat under um, under Russell, but definitely under Steve. Uh, and I wasn't even aware of that. But people would people pointed it out to me, like, "Oh, you know what? They're right. <laughs> we did have an influence. It was fantastic."
0: So the question is, therefore, um, we were all, and I'm sure you <laughs> more than uh, 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 most, because you were part of the show at the time. When the show went away, it was a disaster and Doctor Who had been taken from us and that the National Institution had been unceremoniously Well, it was, and it was, it was
1: ridiculous and appalling that that happened.
0: In hindsight, though, did that need to happen
1: to, no. to make the yeah. show
0: that we have now? Do you think yeah. if Doctor Who had carried on...
1: Well, you wouldn't have the show you have now because you'd be in a different universe, wouldn't you? You'd be in an alternate timeline, but... There was no need for that hiatus. It was just stupidity at every level. I mean, even if your only interest in the world is Mm -hmm. making a fast buck, you don't kill a show that sells all over the world and it sells merchandise all over the world all the time. You just don't do that unless you're the BBC at that period. And it was just incredibly stupid. I mean, it's great the way it's come back now. Gangbusters, it's fantastic. It's a huge hit. But there was no need for, to, you know, to put the kibosh on it for what, whatever it was, twenty years or something. It was madness.
0: And I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking for the names of individuals now.
1: Oh, go, but on. What, <laughs> or, or, go on. Or ask. was it
0: simply down to individuals? What was to blame? Was there something inherent within the BBC, or if different individuals had been in charge, do you think Doctor Who
1: uh, would have well, survived? Um, I suppose the short answer is John Nathan Turner is to blame, and. and I like John, and I'm a great admirer of John, but the, the fact was he'd, he'd been the producer for the last, what, 10 years, 12 years? So if people had taken against Doctor Who, taken against it, which they had, what they were taking against was what John had done. So John would have to carry, he would have to take the rap, I think. If people, if they, I mean, partly they cancelled Doctor Who because of the way it had been, under John's tenure. But partly they canceled it because it was Doctor Who, because it was Doctor Who and because it was science fiction, and they always hated that stuff. And Doctor Who was always a bit of a cuckoo in the nest because it was a kids' show, but it wasn't made by the children's department, it was made by the drama department. So it was always, it always sat a bit uneasily. And I really do think that there, there was something of an impulse to kill Doctor Who from the moment it arrived. I mean, if the Daleks hadn't come along, they would have killed it, they would have smothered it in a cradle, I'm sure um so there was always this because of snobbery basically because you know you, you don't really want people running around other planets and monsters and all this nonsense because you know we're above that we're classy we're sophisticates um so there's always prejudice against doctors that was part of it but also i think under john they'd gone in some really bad directions they'd made some really terrible mistakes and doctor who had gone it had lost its way but i have to always add that also under john Doctor Who had begun to find its way again. With Sylvester, they had a terrific Doctor. With Sophie, they had one of the... You know, that team, Sylvester and Sophie, was absolutely fantastic. I, in all modesty, was running a great writing team. I had fantastic writers. We knew what we were doing. And we were just beginning to do it. I mean, when you look at shows like Survival, Remembrance of the Daleks, Curse of Fenric, I mean, how how could they possibly have cancelled it just when it was getting really good again? And if John was responsible for running it into the ground which, if it was run into the ground, I think it was, he did. He was also responsible for, you know, pulling it out, dusting it off and making it terrific again. So it's always really pissed me off that they cancelled it just when it was getting good again. And that was incredibly frustrating. But your question was, why did it happen and who was responsible? I said so the short answer was John Nathan Turner, because the buck stopped with him. But I think... I've had a lot of time to think about this as you might have realised and I've written about it so I've actually given it some analytical thought as opposed to just being you know uh, um, having a gut reaction to it and I think what happened was that Tom Baker stayed for a long time and John came in on the end of the Tom Baker era and I I do think Tom Baker was one of the great doctors I mean he's fantastic Uh, him, Trout, and Silver are perhaps my favourites yeah of the classic era Um, but baker was kind of nuts right he he was was sort of bug-eyed alien he was he had a certain approach so by the time john had finished working with him he was very sick of tom baker and the tom baker style of doctor so he then moved in a completely different direction with peter davison now peter's a great actor and he's terrific and you know very nice man very handsome leading man but he's very normal and his doctor i think was Way too normal, too nice, too much of a, a standard leading man. And you can sort of see after the madness that was Tom Baker. And, and I, I love that madness. At its best, it was unbeatable. But, you know, the Chinese fouling piece yeah. <laughs> in Talented to Wing Chiang to kill the giant rat. Wonderful stuff. But if you'd had a belly full of that, you, you I could understand you going in the direction of what was the, ultimately a blander doctor. And I do think the Peter Davison doctor was too much in that direction. And then... I think they made, it, uh, again, a, a tactical error with the, the Colin Baker doctor. Because Colin, again, he was a handsome leading man with a big hair, a curly head of blonde hair. And um, I wouldn't necessarily say he was too normal, but he, he was too unlikable. They started him out um, after his regeneration as this kind of bull in a china shop figure. And they've, I've talked to um, Eric Sayward about this, who was the script editor at the time. And he was very he, he said he was very aware that they had ended up with this very unsympathetic kind of doctor. And he he, he went through the list of some sort of decisions that they did at various points, story decisions. And it, at every decision, at every point made perfect sense. But the net result was that you ended up with this doctor who wasn't very likable. And when, then when you added that to the fact that under Colin Baker, they had some very hard, harsh, Story. I'm thinking of Vincent and Varos, which I think is a great science fiction story, but I don't think it's great Doctor Who, which is an odd distinction to make, but I think it's too nasty and too dark in kind of a non-Doctor Who way. I mean, I've often banged on about this before, but when the Doctor is wrestling with some bad guys, and the bad guys fall into a, a bath of acid and begin to dissolve, and he says, oh, don't mind if I don't join you, or words to that effect. I, I think, OK, that's James Bond. That's exactly the kind of thing that James Bond would say. If it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, give him an Austrian accent, it's perfect. But I don't think it's the Doctor. And I've actually spoken to Philip Martin, who Mm. is the writer, who is a terrific writer. I mean, Gangsters is one of the best things I ever saw on British television, and I've interviewed him about that and I I said oh was that something that you know that that, was that an ad lib by the actor or was that something that somebody else suggested he said no that was exactly what I wanted to say I was very happy to have him say it and I think Philip Martin again is a terrific writer but I just felt all of this was not right for Doctor Who and if it had been a science fiction adventure about some other character I would have no complaints about it but it was very on Doctor Who and I think I don't know this for sure but I, I know that around about this time that um uh, the, the the upper echelons of the BBC had begun in particular uh, Michael Grade had begun to really get, take against Doctor Who and, and get it, have a, begin to have a real grudge against it and really to hate the show and I often wonder if it was if it was shows like Vengeance on Virus or particularly Vengeance on Virus because it was a bit of a video nasty it was about video nasties which were this moral panic at the time about horror movies corrupting people and it was very interestingly, that, that story is about that, but it also is that. So there's this kind of meta thing going on. It is an example of what it's discussing. But all of which, again, is a brilliant idea, but it's wrong for a Doctor Who. It's wrong... You see, I never felt Doctor Who was limited to kids. I always felt that it was a show that, that should appeal to adults and work for adults, but also should be open to children and should be viewable by children. And I remember watching Vengeance and Virus, and there's bits where... Um, Perry's being turned into a, a, a bird and stuff, and there's all this quite horrible... It's like one of those really dark fairy tales. And it was... I, I could imagine somebody watching that and just thinking, this is all wrong for Doctor Who. It's gone nasty. It's got quite, gone in a nasty direction. And so I think that by the time John was making those Colin Baker stories, I think people like Michael Grabe were watching it, and they didn't like the, the Colin Baker Doctor. And I love Colin. And I think he could have been a great Doctor, but he wasn't given the right ammunition. They, As I say, he was given a very unsympathetic characterisation, because they thought, oh, we'll do something different. You know, Peter Jefferson was a nice guy, let's turn him into a nasty guy. But that doesn't work, that's all wrong. The Doctor, unless you're, you've you got a deep sympathy with the Doctor, you've got nowhere to go in a show like Doctor Who, because it's, it's so full of exotica, there's no... There's nothing normal about it, right? You're, you're adrift in the universe in some sense with extraordinary things going on. So there has to be a certain amount of coziness. I think you've got to... Even when doctors can be... Doctors can be scary. That's nothing wrong with being a doctor. to being scary. But he's got to kind of be likable with it. He's got to be our... You know, he's the scary guy who's on our side. I think Hartnell was scary. I think Tom Baker was capable of being scary. I think um, Capaldi has a great kind of scariness to him. All, all, the And you know, Sylvester was capable of like this sudden fierceness and, and impressive stature. Uh, and you need all that. But you, you must never sever that cord of sympathy. And I think with the Colin Baker Doctor, they did that. Plus, they gave him this really awful costume. And that really awful costume, it sounds like it's not enough to sink a show, but I do think a really bad costume is enough to sink a show because every scene that the Doctor's in... He's wearing this outfit which makes him look like a clown. And you see, I think it's kind of... There was this deliberate bad taste. They'd done it quite consciously. John you know, I would have encouraged this. And it would have been a good laugh for about 10 seconds, right? But you, it just brings everything down. So when you combine that, that thing about the, the unsympathetic nature of the Doctor's character, some very questionable stories... And I say this, I really like Eric Sayward's work. I think Eric's a terrific writer. Because uh, he's he's an, an admirer of Robert Holmes, a- and if you're going to admire a Doctor Who writer, Robert Holmes is the one to to admire and to emulate. Because he was, to my mind, the ultimate Doctor Who writer in the classic era. He was just brilliant. So Eric had all the right stuff in place, but the end result just wasn't. I mean, he probably had endless problems with scripts. He was doing way more episodes than I was when the show was still full, you know, full length series, and he was just kind of up against it. So. The net result was scripts that didn't work, um, uh, the 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 wrong characterization of the Doctor, that dreadful costume, and I, I can see people looking at Doctor and thinking, okay, I, I can almost sympathize with the people, the powers that be, the BBC, saying, you know, we've had enough of this. It's gone wrong. Let's just put it out of its misery.
0: Well, this is what intrigues me because, and and. You know, we know that when you came in to Doctor Who, you, your first group was Pip and Jane Baker, who were from the previous era, and you've you've you um, uh, made an account of um, uh, the sort of incongruity of of your between your vision and, and, and theirs. Yeah, yeah. Um, But Doctor, you you inherited a show that was, as you say, not liked by the BBC, and I, as a fan, you know was of the age of a fan who had to go into school and justify the fact that I liked Doctor Who. It wasn't the big success that it had once been. And yeah, yeah, we, that, we felt well, very much on the back foot as a, as a fan. You know.
1: That's a very good point, because if it had still been getting huge, commanding huge ratings, that would have been another thing, huge viewing figures. If the audience had been enormous, then the Knives couldn't have been out for it in the same way. But that's very interesting also, because the fans had become fed up with it at that point, because I remember dwb doctor mm. who bulletin which was kind of it was sort of the evil twin of the two doctor who magazines there's sort of an official one doctor who magazine <laughs> and there's dwb which was sort of unofficial and it the the official magazine sort of had to toe the party line but the unofficial one they had become really fed up with it. So, so the BBC was against it, the general public against, was against it, and a large contingent of fans. Obviously not you, though. Well, no, I have, it.
0: It's interesting, though, because I've thought about this, and I have to say, I went through that awful teenage thing, and I, because I'd never really been aware of fandom until quite late, and I stumbled into a comic shop in Birmingham, and I found DWB, and I found myself, and I can see you see fans do it on the internet. Now, no, I spent a lot of my youth as a big Doctor Who fan, getting angry with Doctor Who. At the time, I hated the Happiness Patrol. Yeah. Ten years later, as a grown-up, who isn't soaking up a lot, I adore it, and I think it's very clever. And it's actually a story that I showed my son when my, my, his mum said, all right, why don't you show him a Doctor Who? And I thought, well, let's choose one that's fun and colourful but has a, an excite, but isn't too scary, but it's quite exciting and tells a story quickly. And I chose the Happiness Patrol and then ended up having to watch that on a loop because you know <laughs> what kids are like and they repeat and they repeat. But at the time, I was a very angry fan and I don't think that's the fault of the show. I think that's the fault of that sort of fandom b- manifesting itself in the way that DWB did. So, you, you, so you're not only battling the department that you work for, the corporation you work for, the very people who would be the lifeblood of the show the fans are actually now manifesting their 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 love of the show by hating by saying it's not as good as it used to be.
1: Well, in a sense that everything is not as good as it used to be. My dad used to say as you get older, the ice cubes aren't as good as they used to be, <laughs> right? But um, it's very interesting you bring up the Happiness Patrol because the if there was a central kind of tenet. To what they didn't like about it, the dream, the DWB, which had to change its name to Dreamwatch Bulletin mm. <laughs> to, to avoid the Doctor, who, you know, uh, using the name of Doctor Who. But if if you could summarise what they hated about it, they said it was too pantomime because that John did direct pantomime and it was too camp. And John was a pantomime guy and he was terribly camp. Um, but you see, when we started doing our shows, when I when I was on board and I started bringing on the writers that I wanted. And we did the happiness patrol. The trouble with the happiness patrol is it looked really camp and it did look pantomime, uh, deliberately so, because it, it had an agenda to sort of explore the dark something dark underneath that surface. But and I wouldn't do it th- anything differently, but I there's if you do that, there's sort of no way of of avoiding people saying, Oh my god, here we go again, it's another camp panto style Doctor Who. And it's easy to, to, to regard it as that, but I don't think if you actually watch it and listen to what it's saying, you could possibly uh, keep thinking that.
0: No, and I think the difficulty that with the identity that the show has is... is exactly, you're, you, instead of having stories of alien monsters invading the home counties every week, you decide very much to go for a different kind of science fiction. And Doctor Who does this. Doctor Who reinvents itself with different personnel. And the stories that you tell with the writers that you chose are ones that create their own societies that tell the stories through the creation of a society that doesn't necessarily live naturalistically within the one that we have in order to tell to make your point or tell your stories in an abstract way which is a a very interesting um, and beguiling way of doing science fiction
1: uh, for example Toby? for <laughs> like
0: the the the, high, the, the paradise towers yeah, you know exactly. the of society um, like the Happiness Patrol, yeah. you're creating your own world in which to make the points that you make. Exactly, it's,
1: it's it's a satirical or polemical approach, yeah?
0: Or, or, or allegorical, I suppose. But you're doing it with a BBC budget in a show that <laughs> it has a bad reputation at yeah, the moment. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder if the Happiness Patrol, say, had been sandwiched between Terror of the Autons and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. It would be seen as... A refreshing change to the stuff that we normally do, yeah. but instead it was seen as. But it's not what Doctor Who does, because Doctor Who does those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, uh, you see, the the monsters invading the home counties is right up my street because I I was always agitating for more Earth based stories because, you, we didn't have much of a budget as you just alluded to, so we were working on the cheap and if you had to build a whole bloody planet, it, you know it, it tended not to work. Trying to evoke an alien world was very difficult to do in any way convincingly so i always wanted to bring the monsters to earth uh, and then you could contain it and then i have to say once i did that i then try and eliminate the monsters in the sense that i try to make the monsters as humanoid as possible just to avoid terrible screw-ups in terms of costumes and makeup and of course john was pulling against that because he he rightly believed that doctor who needs monsters and often needs alien settings my counter-argument is, they've, unless they are done well, you're screwed. You're dead in the water. But, but yeah, so I loved the Earth-based stories. And it's interesting that those ones, those stories that were citing Happiness Patrol and Paradise Towers were... Well, Paradise was in the first season, Happiness in the second season that I did with, with Sylph. But that was sort of... I was leaving those alien worlds behind, because I learned pretty early on that, that, that the trick was the ideal show was an Earth-based historical Something like Fenric, World War II, Ghostlight, Victorian. It's wonderful. Those are the stories. If I'd continued to, to work on the show, I, I, that's what I would like to have pursued because they're the ones that work best. Because the BBC understands costume drama and period drama and historical drama and does a bloody good job at it. Mm. So that's that. if you want to do Doctor Who, that's what you do. And then you bring you know your aliens into that. And then you try and, in my era, you try and make them as humanoid as possible to avoid a really, really dodgy costume, which you would get from time to time.
0: Well, it's funny, mentioning Paradise Towers, because you were talking about the the yin and yang of Doctor Who journalism, but I remember being utterly shocked when Doctor Who magazine... Because I, uh, funnily enough, I'd loved Paradise Towers. Uh, I thought it was a breath of fresh air and something, and I watched it over and over again. And I haven't seen it for years, interestingly, uh, because I want to wait for the time that's right to go back to it. Because there was a stage when I watched it every day, I loved it so much. Because <laughs> wow. I just thought it was so different, and I liked that. I loved the world it created, um, and I liked the slightly yeah. over the top, abstract creations because I thought it was a, a different way of telling a story, and I enjoyed it. And I thought it suited the. So, so I know I really liked that. Um, and. But interestingly. It got a terrible review in Doctor Who magazine. Oh,
1: in... in oh, my God. In the, par, the party journal. Of.
0: yeah. And I wondered... What's going if on? If that had been yeah. something that, uh, you know, the production team would go, hang on, at least we could take them for granted. Yeah, exactly. So was that was that John losing his grip on the magazine? Well, which, as I understood it, he, he you know, he would... Well, I'm, I'm
1: astonished like to hear it. that. Um, you see, the thing was, when I joined the show... There's was all these fanzines writing about me because of the new script editor. I, I, being human, I was hungrily devouring every word that was written about me until I read the first negative notice. And then I got so upset. I thought, okay, it's it, the sensible thing to do is just never read this stuff. Because if you do read it, it rattles around your head. Mm. So, I mean, if you unless you could be the sort of person who, who really can laugh it off, water off a duck's back, if you're not that kind of person and I'm not sure anybody is, I just advise people not to read. So I never read any of those reviews. So when you mentioned that one about Paradise Towers getting a slagging in the party journal, in Doctoring Magazine, um, I, I until you just said that now, I had no idea that such a thing could have happened because I, I religiously and scrupulously never read another word about any of the stuff I worked on.
0: And yet fast forward three years later and I was pleased as punch at school uh, because they had all the papers in the library and The Independent describes... Ghostlight, I think episode episode two as quintessentially splendid, and episode three as the best Doctor Who story in about ten years. And
1: this was at the time that it went out, and that's the Independent oh, that,
0: just in the television listings.
1: And this, oh my God, because I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised to read that these days in a blog or in a, the Independent online or something. So that's no, that actually was in the
0: television listings of the brilliant. Independent.
1: Brilliant. You see, well, that's the downside of never reading the reviews because i never knew there's any yeah. good ones either. But I, well, it, it was deservedly so. It's such a I'm delighted that they liked it because a lot of people would just scratch their heads and they couldn't work out what the hell it was about. To me it was always perfectly straightforward and obvious. But it certainly goes like, which is a fantastic story, a lot of people are baffled by it. And I'm glad that The Independent, even if they were baffled by it, didn't let that spoil their enjoyment.
0: No, I, I think it, I don't think it's a story that sp- spoon-feeds what it's about to the audience. <laughs> I think you have to concentrate and maybe watch it more than once, which Doc fans shouldn't complain about because... That's what we do. That's their job. <laughs> um, I also think it's a very handsome production. I think Alan Waring as a director is terrific.
1: Alan was the best director we worked with. And um, they were... Uh, survival and Ghostlight were both fantastic stories. Of course, as I speak these words, I'm thinking of the dodgy cheetah people. The cheetah people just didn't work. The costumes for the cheetah people just didn't work in Survival. And, the, and it's heartbreaking because the scripts were so good and the intent was so fantastic. You see, I was talking earlier about making Monsters Humanoid, so when we were doing survival, I actually was arguing that the cheetah people should be very humanoid. They, we should just do it with, um, they should look like human beings, but they should have elongated talons, claws, fangs, and maybe contact lenses, right? Uh, an example would be the vampire girls in The Curse of Fenric, the, the girls in the graveyard, you know, the, the girls who get turned, mm. that kind of thing, which would have been incredibly effective. But John was, no, no we've got to have a full-blown monster, because this is Doctor Who which would be fine if a full-blown monster worked, but it was, it was Puss in Boots. I mean, that, that's I think it was Rona who said it looked like Puss in Boots, and it did. It just looked like Puss in... Can I say <laughs> f***ing? Puss <laughs> in f***ing boots. It's just terrible. But, yeah, so I'm sorry I had to get that off my chest, but having got that off my chest, you know, there's the odd dodgy mechanical cat in, in survival too, but Alan Waring just, he did a fantastic job, and those were great stories. And... As to Ghostlight, I think the reason it baffles people is it's got a complicated backstory. Well, not that complicated, but it has a backstory. You don't see everything on screen. You've got this team that is—it's like um, uh, Darwin in the Beagle, travelling around, uh, getting specimens and, and puzzling about evolution. So you've got this spaceship that's travelling to all these worlds, studying evolution, and they've been travelling together for a long time, and there's a certain amount of dissension has arisen, and the way it works is that they go to a world and they try and discover the dominant life form. What, what they, they send out an emissary who uh, imitates, develops and imitates, uh, develops into the, the dominant life form on that planet. And in the case of Ghost Light, hilariously, this is an vict- English Victorian gentleman. You know, it's obviously the, the ultimate, the ultimate life form on the planet. But you also have an experimental control. Now, in science... control is the thing that remains unchanged because you've got to have two things like when you have a drug test you've got to have somebody who tries a new drug and somebody who has a placebo which is just a sugar pill because otherwise you don't know what's going on you don't know the difference to measure the difference you have to have somebody who's unchanged somebody who doesn't take part in the experiment so to speak that's so you had so we had a character called control uh, who was the scientific control and it didn't occur to me until decades later that somebody said oh we thought control was the one who was in control oh you know that Homer Simpson slaphead dough, and that's a perfectly legitimate mistake. But I just never, for a moment, mm. seen that interpretation of it. And when I realised that, I thought, oh, okay, I can see how people would get confused about that show with the slightly complex background backstory and the potential for confusion over something like control being not in control, but being the 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 one on the spaceship who remains unchanged. Things like that. So I guess it was a bit overcomplicated, but. There's such pleasures in that show. The dialogue is so good. Things like The Cream of Scotland very, Yard. Good. Brilliant. And, and uh, you know, that wonderful speech about burnt toast and bus stations. You know, I'm getting a little tingle just thinking. Of Mark Platt's dialogue was just so good. And the whole thing about going to Java. It's, I, I, I got the tingle now. <laughs> I've got full-blown tingle. And it was just such a brilliant script. And looked so beautiful in that, that Victorian house. So that was the kind of Doctor we wanted to do. And I'm so... I'm amazed. I'm amazed both by the fact that Doctor... Who Magazine gave us a kicking of paralyzed towers, and that the, the independent gave us this encomium, this this rave. I, that's brilliant. You have to tell me all, all about all the other reviews I missed yeah. <laughs> in my but, tenure on the show. But
0: typically, of course, because that was the last story you produced. Exactly. Uh, 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 and so you get this brilliant. Too late, right? baby. Yeah, and it's gone. I mean, was that inevitable? Was there anything you could, by the time you got there, was there anything you could have done to stop it being happening?
1: Well, we did. You know w- what we did was we started making really. You can't. It's like a. Um, it's like a giant uh, ship on the ocean, like an oil tanker. You can't turn it around really quickly. you to because it's a big thing in motion. So when I inherited the show, uh, when I'm sorry, when I joined the show, I inherited this script from Pip and Jane Beck, which I never liked and which I think was a really bad script because when it in, it introduced the new Doctor, this is Syl, Sylvester. And it was the new, big new chance for the show. And it was a script from the old era, the, the era that we needed to leave behind. So right out of the starting gate, our horse fell over, right? So that was a problem. And this is going to sound terribly ungallant. We were stuck with Bonnie. Now, Bonnie's terrific. And if you hear her reading the stories, like she, she's, been, she's now doing this thing where she's reading stories like Paradise Towers. She's terrific. But uh, she was saddled with this ludicrous character. who All she did was, she was just a screamer. She was the sort of doctor who came out and just screamed, and she wore these really camp frocks. It was just terrible. So you had, and the trouble this Bonnie Langford came with this whole freight attached to her. She was the girl. She'd been the story, Just Williams' story, was it called? Yeah. And she, and her catchphrase is, "I'll scream and scream and scream." So John always had this knack for he, he'd always cast people who were quite starry, quite famous, but not necessarily famous for the right thing. So Bonnie had this, brought all this with her, all this baggage with her, and. She was supposed to, the character in Mel was supposed to be quite interesting, supposed to be a computer scientist, but they never did anything with that. She just ended up as being the girl who ran down the corridor and screamed. So, um, as much as I love Bonnie, that character didn't work. So, we were lumbered with that character. So, Paralyzed Towers, very good story. And then we did Delta, which was excellent, and Dragonfire, which was my favorite, because at that point we could hand over from Bonnie to Ace. So, what I'm saying is, even when we had Sylvester, who was terrific doctor a great doctor you couldn't instantly begin to hit the ground running because a we had been nobbled by that for a script and b we still had a companion who was a you see the trouble with, as i said Tom around it was it was it was of the old era which had, where everything had been going wrong and bonnie was of the old era where everything had been going wrong so you, we couldn't divest ourselves of that fast enough so you said is there anything we could have done well we began to do it it really began to kick him with the dragon fire I mean, people often come up to me and say, oh, we really like the second and third seasons of Sylvester. Oh, why don't you like the first one? And I go back and look at it, and I think, we hadn't got rid of the elements that were hanging over from the old show. And some people would love all this stuff I'm pilloring, all the Colin Baker, there are people out there who love that stuff. But I think the general reception was that it didn't, didn't work. And that was my perception of it, too. So that first season, we were just finding our feet. Second season, we really began to fire on all cylinders. And I think that we did save the show, but I think people had stopped watching. I think what had happened is that Michael, well, Michael Gray was gone by then, but the BBC, the other um, nabobs of the BBC, the other top bods, they'd got a fixed impression of the show as something that they really, something reprehensible, in fact, something they really didn't like. And they didn't want any evidence to the contrary. And they certainly weren't going to go out of their way to watch the show. I mean, it's very easy to say, a oh, Doctor Who's crap if you're not watching it and don't right. have any, you know, any evidence to the contrary will not be allowed into court. So that was sort of the situation, I think. I don't think they looked at it. And even if they did look at it, they would have been so blinkered and encumbered by their prejudice, it would have been very difficult for them to see. But you see, Remembrance was such a fantastic story. At the time, the head of series and serials was... Guy called Mark Shivas, very distinguished producer, did Six Wives, of Henry VIII, etc. Moonlighting, great movie, nothing to do with Bruce. Yeah, nothing to do with Bruce or Sybil, but but a, a great movie with Jeremy Iron about about um, moonlighting worker, Polish workers in London. So anyway, Mark Shivas, big top producer. He was head of department, and what we used to have to do is we used to have to when we'd got a, a fine cut, when we got a proper edit of the episode, a videotape of an episode. We'd go and we'd go to Mark Shepards' office. We'd use this newfangled thing called a VHR, you know, this video cassette recorder. I would, and uh, there was about three of them in the BBC when I first joined. So anyway, we'd sit down in Mark Shepards' office on his nice sofa and we'd play the episode. And so he'd make sure that we, you know, we didn't have a Satanist raping a member of the royal family on the screen or anything too dodgy. And we showed him the first episode. Remembers the Daleks. And I was so proud of that, that show. I think it was the first episode. It's the episode in which Ace goes into the rooming house and she's talking to this lovely lady, run, lovely old lady, lovely salty old lady runs this rooming house. The old lady leaves the room and, and Ace goes to the window She sees there's a sign in the window and she can't read it so she turns it around and the sign says no colored." right? I thought, what a great moment. So I'm sitting there, little Andrew, the script editor, is sitting there excitedly waiting for this moment to come out on the screen so Mark Shivas can crow with the light, pat me on the back and tell me what a great job I'm doing. And John, too, because John's there, too. And the phone rings. So the Shivas goes, and, you know, on the phone. And while he's on the phone, the whole scene goes by, right? So Shiva sits back down. And I made him rewind it to see that, that scene. And, and he wasn't pleased. He wasn't pleased I made him rewind the tape. So, of course, when it came to that scene, he said, oh, no, that's, that's all wrong. He said what she should do is she should tear up the sign to show her disapproval. And this is the terrible thing about a situation like that for years after i thought oh we, we blew it she should have torn up the sign and i was talking to ben about it ben aronovich She wrote that he said no she shouldn't have torn up the bloody sign that would have been ridiculous it was perfect and he's right it, it, you don't want to overstate it was all there on her face if she starts tearing up the sign you know why does not she stand on a, sh- a, sh- a soapbox with a megaphone and so start... it's the difference between getting the point across properly and subtly and artistically and, and making a big meal of it but the point i'm Getting across and making a meal about here is that here was this guy who was supposed to be watching Doctor who and and had he had the eyes to see, he could have seen that we were doing great stuff with Doctor. Who. I was, too, I mean, nothing's better than remembrance of the Daleks, saving the odd wobbly Dalek and a bit of dodgy makeup here and there. Um, Davros could be better, in my humble opinion. But you know, apart from that, it's a bloody, it's a cracker, it's a dynamite, it's a great, great Doctor who story. And if they couldn't see that. What
0: can you do Thanks to Andrew, who, of course, as a script editor for a large part of the show's history, uh, gets uh, more than one episode of Who's Round. Um, his charity is Cats Protection, so cats.org.uk, cats, C-A-T-S, dot If you could donate to that uh, for this episode and indeed the next couple because we've got a lot more to hear from Andrew Cartnell. So tune in at the same time next week. And until then, uh, have fun, be nice, don't do anything bad. Cheers, bye.
1: From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Maker of Demons
0: For too many years our fleet drifted through space Where hope is coldest and despair best fits But deliverance came in an unexpected form When a blue box materialised upon the Duke of Milan Oh. Hmm. Your idea of a golden age and mine are pretty different, Professor. This is wrong. Very wrong. What happened
1: here? I, for one, am very grateful for the opportunity to thank you in person, Doctor, for everything you've done for us. Did you hear that? Yes. Yeah. What is that?
0: We're detecting tremors. What? No! Ace, get back here. What is that? It Ah! It just came up from the ground. It doesn't seem friendly. (gasps) Definitely not friendly.
1: Though it pains me to inform you, it is almost certain that the girl Ace is dead. No! Hell is empty, Doctor. And all
0: the devils are here.